Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Shaler, if you don't know me. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, my dad's the pastor. Bob likes to start off with a joke. I like to start off with a story about my parents. <laughs> Especially since it's Family Worship Sunday. They told me I had to speak on Family Worship Sunday. I'm like, oh, great. I mean, I am an expert at raising everybody else's kids since I don't have any yet. Uh, but I'm not really, so I'll just tell you how my parents raised me. <laughs> One morning before church, I was out playing with some friends, and I broke my foot. Like, I really broke my foot. Like, it was swollen and purple and, and everything. So I go into my dad, and I said, hey, I broke my foot, and I think I'm going to throw up. And we're about to leave for church. And, of course, at the time, I, I played in the orchestra. And he said, well, let's go to church. And I said, no, Dad, I think we need to go to the hospital. And he goes, no, here, you can just go to church. And I said, I think I'm going to throw up. And he goes, great, when we get there, go to the janitor's closet, get a bucket, bring it with you to the orchestra. And if you have to throw up, don't get any on Mario. So I said, well, what about my foot? It's broken. I think I need to go to the doctor. He goes, no. When it comes time for prayer, you just go forward, have him anoint you with oil, and pray that you're going to be healed. And you'll be fine. Well, my foot was still broken. But I went to church. I played. I suffered through all that pain. And then after church, Instead of going to the hospital, my dad went and got a cheeseburger at Wendy's, and then we went to the hospital and I got it x-rayed. <laughs> That's how things were in our house growing up. <laughs> I left my mom out this time because her feet are still hanging out of the window from the last story I told up here. So... All right. Uh, a few years ago, I was at probably the nicest wedding I've ever been to in my entire life. Uh, it was my best friend's little brother, my best friend that grew up across the street from me. We grew up playing uh, just about every day together. We were probably actually playing together when I broke my foot. And his little brother was getting married, uh, I don't know, two, three years ago. And their uncle owns a vineyard in Napa Valley. That's where the wedding was at. It's a little bit different than any other wedding I'd ever gone to before. And so we fly up to San Francisco and we stayed uh, the first night downtown, went to dinner and stuff, and then the next night we got to go stay at my friend's uncle's vineyard. If, you've, if you're familiar with the area, it's real close to St. Helena. You basically go down to the end of the street, turn left, and it's the first vineyard on the right. And uh, so we got to stay there. So I lived that weekend in, in a world that I don't usually get to participate in. And I remember standing there that night, waiting in the infinity pool, <laughs> overlooking the vineyard. And I had two thoughts. And the first thought was what my parents pounded into me every single day. And I was like, thanks, Dad. 
the first thought was, as I was just enjoying everything, uh, a voice came into my head, and as my dad saying, look, I know you're sitting here envying all of this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I had the second thought, and it was when Jesus went to a wedding one time, and he did his first miracle, and he turned water into wine. So I then started looking into that story. And so I just kind of want to share with you a few things that I've picked up along the way uh, about this story. So uh, we can read it. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. All right. Jesus' mother was, okay, that's what I thought. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, try talking to your mom like that. (laughs) Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, let me pray real quick. Lord, uh, these next few moments, I pray that you will continue to meet with us here this morning and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife told me I had to be short and I couldn't go too long today, so hopefully this won't be as long as my dad's. Um, so this was the first sign that Jesus did and I, I realized that it's really like a first impression. First impressions are really important because when you make a first impression, you're kind of telling everybody, this is what I'm all about. This is who I am. This is what I've come here for. And so this was really Jesus' first impression, but it kind of fascinated me for a little while because to me it's really just not that big of a deal. Um, he fixed a catering problem. Like nobody was raised from the dead, no lepers were healed, no orphans just magically had parents. Like nothing crazy happened. It was like the caterer didn't order enough stuff and he's like, oh, hey, here, I'll, I'll fix it. And so I thought like why would what appears to be such an insignificant event be the first thing that Jesus did to come and say, hey, this is what I'm all about. Um, 
There's this guy, I'll just read you this quote real quick because Josh said in sermons you're supposed to have quotes. So here's a quote. Uh, This is from a guy named Reynolds Price who is a professor at Duke and he... um, he translated a couple of the Gospels. He, he passed away recently, but he, he translated a couple of the Gospels. And in, in his introduction to John, this is what he had to say. He said, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, that is, if you were just making up stories about Jesus to get across his power and his glory, who would invent the inaugural event of Jesus' career, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? So if you were going to make up a story about Jesus, a story that was trying to convey his greatness or his power, you would never make up a story like this. And so Reynolds Price basically said, the reason that that's in there is because it's obviously an eyewitness account. It obviously really happened. So as I looked at this, I realized that this is more, much more than just a miracle. It really is a bigger picture of really all who Jesus is all he came to do. And so, first I want to talk about who he really is. In verse 8 and 9, uh, they run out of wine. He says, hey, go fill the jars, take some to the master of the banquet, the master of ceremonies, or whatever you want to call it. And so they go and do that, and they bring it to him. This guy was probably, I don't know if he was the one in charge of having everything there, but Jesus really saved him from embarrassing himself. And when he did that, really what he did is he said, hey, I know you think that you're the master of the banquet. I really, I know that you think that you're the guy in charge of all of this, but really that's me. Really, I'm coming and I'm revealing to everyone here that I'm the master of the banquet, that I am the Lord of this feast, that I'm the one in charge of everything. And so that first sign that first miracle was him bringing joy or him continuing the life of a party, which seems kind of odd at times because I know like sometimes you think of being a Christian and and we all hear like, hey, you're you're supposed to pick up your cross and you're supposed to follow Jesus and that's very true. You're supposed to do that. You have to live a life of self-denial a lot of times. You have to live a life of discipline a lot of times. Christianity is much more disciplined than anybody ever told me. Um, and it's, it's all true. But in this incident, it's not that those things don't exist, but it is, hey, I'm here and I'm revealing to everybody that I have come to bring festive joy. And so, like, you know, I'm, I'm not the, uh, I do think you have to keep everything in balance. I'm not the, the typical evangelical humanist that thinks, oh, you just come to church, get your ears tickled, slapped on the butt, and sit on home. And, you know, hey, we'll see you next time that we want to check in the offering from you. Ron might be like that, but I'm definitely not like that. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think it's significant that as much as Jesus asks from you and I, the first thing he did was say, hey, I've come to bring you joy. So in Isaiah 25, I think it's like he said, hey, you know all those old prophets when they said stuff about me? In Isaiah 25, it says, in the last day, the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of the finest meats and wine well refined. 
And on this mountain he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. And your reproach and shame will be taken away forever. For the Lord God has spoken. And so it was like he was beginning to fulfill what everybody had said about him. And so that's who Jesus was. And then I think the whole key to this passage is really in verse 4. So his mom comes to him. And his mom comes to him with really a serious, serious request because she says, hey, they're about to run out of wine. Which, and I know, like, we're good assembly of God folk, so we don't know this. But for most people, when the wine goes out, that means the party's over. For us, we're just standing in the corner interceding on for everybody else who's there partying. But for everybody else, the party's over when the wine goes out. So she sees that, that this is happening. And I don't know if she was close to the family or whatever, but she wanted to save them some embarrassment. And it's Jesus' response that really gets to me. Because his response was not like how my response would be to my mom. Because when my mom comes to me with a request, I just sit there and say, how can I help you, mother? (laughs) And then, but Jesus says, woman. I tried that one time. I even told her that's how Jesus did it. (laughs) She didn't really seem to care. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. In NIV, I think it says my hour has not yet come. Um, His response is clearly to me harsh, which I would never talk to my mother harshly. And then his response seems like it has nothing to do with the request that she just made. So I sat there and I thought about this for a while, and then I, I, I think this is just kind of my idea, and I'll drop it on you this morning. You can take it or leave it. But I think he was thinking of something else. I think he was at this wedding, and his mind was in a different place because of the way that he responds to his mother because it was like so abruptly, like she, it was like she interrupted where his mind was, and he's harsh, and he calls her woman. Why do you do this? My time has not yet come. And um, at first when I thought about this, I thought, well, obviously Jesus was just annoyed. They thought his mom was nagging him, and he didn't really want to do a miracle. But then he just turns right around and does a miracle. So... I don't think Jesus is like us. I don't think he's just going to be that wishy-washy. So I, I, I begin to think his mind was in a different place. And I realized, so he's a single guy. Or if you're a single girl, when you're single and you go to a wedding, what do you typically think about? You probably sit there, and as much as you enjoy what's taking place, or if somebody drug you there and you hate it, whatever, but you're probably sitting there thinking, I wonder, I wonder what my wedding's going to be like one day. And I think throughout Jesus' life, he thought about what his wedding was going to be like often. I think he was at this wedding, 
And for us, when we go to a wedding, we might sit there and think about, hey, I wonder who I'm going to marry, or I wonder who's going to come. I wonder where it's going to be at. I wonder if my sister's going to make parole and be able to come to the wedding. <laughs> I wonder if my mother-in-law is going to be absolutely ape crazy. My mother-in-law is perfect, but, uh, but you didn't know at the time. You don't, you don't know. And throughout the Old Testament, um, there's several ways in which you see that God is relating to us. One is as a king to a servant. Another one would be as a shepherd to a sheep. Another one would be as a father to his children. But then you see all throughout the scriptures that God wants to relate to us as a husband to a wife, as a bridegroom does to a bride. That had to have been ingrained into the mind of Jesus. He had to have known that. And so I, I think that he was sitting there thinking about that. In fact, in Matthew, he even has the audacity when some people come up to him and say, hey, why aren't your boys or your disciples fasting? And he responds and says, why would you fast when you're with the bridegroom? He actually calls himself that. Um, in Revelation chapter 21, John said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them forever. So I sit there and I thought, you know what? That's what Jesus was thinking about. He was thinking about what his coming wedding is going to be like one day. But then it doesn't really answer the question of like, well, why does he talk back to his mom like that? Why does he get annoyed like she's nagging him? And the reason I think that he appears to me to be so troubled is because he's thinking about what it's going to take for him to have that wedding. For him to one day, like John said, to be united with us forever. Because he says to Mary, hey, my hour has not yet come. And every other time in, in the Gospel of John, when it refers to the hour of Jesus, it's referring to the hour of his death. And so it's like Mary comes to him and she says, hey, they run out of wine. And he says, I'm not ready to die yet because he's thinking about something else. So what did he come, come to do? He came to give his water and his blood as, as our wine for our wedding with him. Um, I got one more thing. I told you I would be quick. One time I was flying back from, the, from somewhere in the Middle East and I was on a buddy pass. I think it was Donnie Morrow's, if you guys remember him. And I was trying to get to JFK, and for wherever I was at, um, the airline, it was, a, it was an American carrier, they, they did not have employees to run their gates. So they were like, the employees were like contracted out 
and they were just like working for some independent company, I guess. So I tried to go board this flight. And what I think I learned is that if you're an independent contractor, you don't really care much about customer service for that airline. Now, if you were with me trying to get to Miami about a week ago, you're like, well, the airline employees don't care much about customer service for the airline either. But we saw Janice lose her salvation that night. (laughs) And Brent supported it. (laughs) They're like, just give us all the free stuff you can. And anyway, so that night when I was trying to get back to to the U.S., those airline employees, I guess they're judged by hitting their numbers and getting planes out on time. And so I'm waiting there seeing if I'm going to get cleared to take this flight. And it looks like I'm not, that's not going to happen. And so... uh, they shut, the, they shut the door, and they say the plane's going to leave. We sit there for a few minutes, and the plane doesn't really go anywhere. And after what seemed like an eternity, but after a few minutes, that, that door to that jet bridge opens back up. The pilot walks out, and he, and he walks up to the gate, and I'm, you know, standing close because I was trying to see if I was going to get on the plane. He walks up to the gate, and he says to the gate agent, hey, so my wife's not on this plane. And the gate agent was like, I'm sorry, sir. We've boarded everybody that we can, uh, and we just have to go. The plane has to leave. And he's like, yeah, but my wife's not on it. Look, there she is right over there. We're not, we're not going to leave until you put the, my wife on this plane. Like, I just walked by some open seats, and she needs to come with me. And this gate agent was like, I'm sorry, sir, but... Uh, you're going to have to go. We don't have time for this. We've boarded everybody that we can, and you just, you're just going to have to leave. And he looks at her, and he goes, he didn't get rude or anything. He goes, I don't think that you understand. <laughs> I'm not leaving <laughs> until you put my wife on this plane. And she goes, I'm sorry, sir. And he goes like, whatever. And he goes and he goes back on the plane. He sits on the plane and then that gate agent removes the jet bridge from the plane and the plane sat there with the door open for like 10 minutes. And it was like a standoff to see who was going to win, the pilot or the gate agent. It was actually really, really kind of cool to see. So they sit there, this jet bridge is drawn back for like 10 minutes, and as you can guess, eventually, you see that jet bridge start moving back to the plane, (laughs) the gate agent walks out, and I don't remember this lady's name, but they're like, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, would you please come get your boarding pass? And of course, at that point, everybody else that's standing by for that flight's like, whoa, hey, wait a second, since you just reopened up boarding, Let's get us on too. And so this guy's wife takes her boarding pass and she walks down that jet bridge. And I'll never forget, she walked with her head held high 
like she was proud of the fact <laughs> of what her husband had done for her. And so I sit there and think, if we are the bride of Christ, there were a lot of spiritual parallels I kind of pulled out of that story. Um, one is you get to go to places that other people don't get to go. You get to go to the presence of the Lord. And that day, I wanted to go to JFK, and I didn't get to go because I wasn't married to that dude. I probably would have married him just to, get to, <laughs> just to try to get home. But I wasn't given that privilege. <laughs> this just got weird. <laughs> And the church, our church, the church, is the bride of Christ, and it's a privilege to be a part of it. And I know that at times people can talk badly of the church. I know that it's, it's uh, far from perfect, and I know that we're far from perfect. But let us never forget that it's a privilege to be a part of the church of Jesus and that Charles Spurgeon, because Josh also said you have to have a Charles Spurgeon quote in your messages, <laughs> that Charles Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. And so it's a privilege to be a part of it. And then when you get to be a part of it, and you come in to that relationship with Jesus, you get to walk with your head held high, not out of arrogance not out of pride, but because there's no more shame. Because you belong to the bridegroom. Because you get to go to places that other people don't get to go to. She probably sat in first class, too. Um, <laughs> all right. Here's a, couple of, here's a couple of lessons that I pulled out of this story, and then we're going to end today by going to the table of the Lord. The first thing is that it was when they were out that Mary approached Jesus. They were out of wine. So she did not come to him and say, hey, I need you to go around and top everybody off. It was when they had nothing left. That's when Jesus acted. And for us, we've got to admit when we're out. You can't be afraid of that. You've got to go to him and say, I've got nothing left. And that's when he acts. Another thing is that you can go to Jesus with the little things. I think I said earlier, I was like, what's the big deal? This was a catering hiccup. Nobody was raised from the dead. No lepers were healed. What's the big deal? You can go to him with the little things. He just saved probably a couple teenagers uh, a little bit of embarrassment. About a week ago, I was convicted about this um, when we were in Honduras. And I'll just tell you, confess how self-righteous I got. Uh, when everybody was stuck out in the roads, I was like, 
what's the big deal? They should have seen how bad I had it when I was in winter ball in the Mexican League and got held down by the corrupt police. And these people are at a gas station just chilling. Atticus Geary came in. He goes, everybody's overreacting. And I was like, yeah. But you can go to him with anything. You can go to him with the little things. And then... And then lastly, you, you have to submit to his timing. So Mary came to Jesus with a normal, legitimate request. He looks at her. He says, hey, it's not my time. And then he responds by sending a bunch of people around to do some things that look like they have nothing to do with what she just said. Therein lies a lot of what your Christian life's going to look like. <laughs> you can go to Jesus And so many times it looks like the way that he responds has nothing to do with what you just asked him. But how does Mary respond? Does she look at him and say, how dare you talk to your mother like that? Because that's what my mom did. (laughs) She says, nope, you do whatever he says. So when you go to Jesus and it looks like He's walking around and doing a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with what you just asked him. Take the lesson from Mary and say, nope, we're going to do whatever he says. So I want to end it this way. I heard a guy say this one time, and we're about to go to the table of the Lord this morning. But in that wedding, Jesus sat there in the midst of, of a joyful, festive celebration. And he sat there and thought and sipped on the sorrow that was going to come to him from what he had to do to get to his wedding. So that this morning, you and I can sit in a world full of sorrow and pain and go to the table of the Lord this morning and sip the joy that's to come.